You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Hi, everybody. How are you? Hope this finds you well. Thank you so much for joining us for another week of Soundtracking, my weekly podcast where I dive into the minds of creatives to talk about their relationship with film and music, both personally, but also professionally. And Christmas continues to come early on Soundtrack. And as once again, we have two guests for you instead of one. First up, a bit of a legend in my mind, given that he scripted both American Beauty and Six Feet Under. Alan Ball has now written and directed a little gem of a film in the shape of Uncle Frank, which you can watch on Amazon Prime. Starring Paul Bettany, Uncle Frank tells the story of a gay man forced to confront his past on a road trip with his niece and has all the wit and nuance of Alan's previous stellar work. Then, perhaps even more impressively, on a certain level, I'm joined by Viggo Mortensen, who not only wrote and directed, but also starred in and composed the score for Falling, his first film behind the camera. A long time in the making, Falling sees Lance Henriksen play the homophobic Willis, who's forced to move in with his gay son when he starts to exhibit signs of dementia. Falling is out in cinemas as of today, the 4th of December, and it's also available to watch at home. For more details on where you can see it, just head to modernfilms.com forward slash falling. Now, we'll get to both of those in a moment. Before that, a word from our very good friends at Grass & Co, who have been incredibly supportive of the podcast. And if you're a regular listener, you'll have heard me praise the benefits of this brand. Grass & Co, if you didn't know, are a premium CBD range of the finest quality, ethically sourced CBD, blended with therapeutic botanic ingredients. And there are three ranges, Calm, rest and ease. And I genuinely find that it helps me with, well, a number of issues really, including anxiety, stress and sleeping. And that's down to the way they've been created to relax your mind and soothe your body. Also the way they've blended all natural botanical ingredients, including ginger, turmeric and orange or ashwagandha, chamomile and mint. So the taste is smooth and delicious. Now, as well as the CBD oils, Grass & Co have a wonderful collection of other companion products that help with your daily routine. It's best to start low and slow. The 500 milligram calm range of CBD oil is a good place to begin your journey. Taking it first thing in the morning really sets you up for your day. It brings a touch of tranquility to whatever lays ahead for you. Also part of the Calm range, you have a wonderful balm that can release muscle tension and aching joints, whilst also deeply nourishing dry sore skin, perfect for this time of year. And it can also be applied any time of the day to pressure points or temples. Then you can end the day with Calm Body Oil after a relaxing bath, a candle or pillow spray to help you unwind and get the mind and body in the mood for a good sleep. I do swear by this product and the benefits I feel are quite extraordinary. Grass & Co CBD oils contain no trace of THC. All the CBD products are totally legal to buy, consume and supply in the UK. Interested? Then find your calm with 25% off plus free shipping at grassandco.com 
forward slash sound. That's grassandco.com forward slash sound. All you need to do is use the discount code sound at checkout to claim your 25% off the Grass & Co. Calm, Ease and Rest CBD ranges. Also, with Christmas around the corner and if you're searching for a gift for someone special, the Grass & Co. Christmas shop is now open, including an incredible selection of gift boxes from the little box of Christmas Calm and Silent Night Kit to the Ultimate Luxe CBD Edition. Find memorable presents that will last long past Boxing Day. A calm Christmas all wrapped up in one. I know we all need that. Visit grassandco.com forward slash sound and use the discount code sound at checkout to claim your 25% off the entire Grass & Co ranges. And so to Alan, whose wonderful film Uncle Frank is scored by Nathan Barr. And it's with one of Nathan's cues that we begin came out to Beth. for your time of course congratulations on the film it's wonderful thank you what a beautiful film oh thank you so much i really appreciate that how long has this um particular story of uncle frank been in your head you know 30 years ago i was living in new york city and i went home to my home state of georgia my hometown of marietta georgia to come out of the closet to my mother and uh, when I did, she said, well, I blame your father for this because I, I think he was that way, too. <laughs> and I don't know if that's even true because he was already dead. And so I never had a chance to talk to him about it. Yeah. But uh, the next day we were driving around North Georgia visiting relatives and we passed a lake. And my mom said, that's where Sam Lassiter drowned. And I said, who's Sam Lassiter? And she said, he was a real, real, real good friend of your daddy's. Oh, wow. And uh, I later found out that my father had accompanied Sam's body on a train back to their hometown of Asheville, North Carolina. I don't know. This just opened a window in my head of what if, what, yeah. what might have been, what might that story have been? Yeah. So it's complete conjecture on my part. But it uh, sort of percolated in my brain for about 25 years. And then four or five years ago, I sat down to write a script and Uncle Frank is what came out. Wow, that makes it even more powerful here in the kind of, you know, the, the personal stories that it's that are in there that, that form this beautiful story. I think Paul Bettany's performance in this is extraordinary. It the, really is. The subtleties and the, the depth of emotion that he shows in this is just so great to watch. I mean, I've always loved him as a as an actor. And he mm -hmm. kind of I don't know, it's it's funny with Paul and I loved I love getting the chance to talk to him as well, but he kind of he just reminds us every now and again he sort of almost like like a firework throws these extraordinary performances at us every now and again just to remind us how great he is. 
Not that everything he is in any is great at, but in particular, there are certain films, I think, that really allow him to, I don't know, to dive deep, to kind of really get to the soul of a character. Right. I agree. Absolutely. Well, you know, the story had personal um, meaning for him as well. Yeah. Um, He's told the story many times, so I, I I can repeat it, I think. His father came out of the closet at 63 years old and uh, spent 20 years, had a, had a 20 year relationship with a man. And then when that man died, Paul's father, as Paul's father got closer to death, he, um, he went back into the closet because he was a, a very staunch Catholic. Yeah. And he was afraid of not getting into heaven because uh, being gay is a mortal sin. So for Paul as well, I think it was a, it was a chance to sort of play a what if scenario what if his father had been able to fully embrace who he who he was and accept who he was and uh it had a lot of personal meaning for him as well i'm glad you you persuaded him into that into that role thank you it didn't take a lot i mean (laughs) we had one conversation and he was uh we had one fun phone conversation and it became clear to both of us that it was it was kind of the perfect uh the perfect fit the music in the film is is wonderful, both a wonderful collection of of needle drops, existing pieces of music, be that um, the Isley Brothers or the Capitals and Apollo 100 and Joy in there as well. But Nathan Barr's score is just perfectly pitched and beautifully placed in between those moments. And really, I don't know what, for me, I just felt like almost like the introduction to Frank is almost the introduction to the score in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. It, was- it, really, it really plays an important part. That first score cue when Beth comes out on the porch and she sees Uncle Frank and, and we start her, um, her narration was, is just so beautiful. Nate and I, I worked with him on True Blood, but uh, he he what he did with uh, this and with the you know we had very limited resources all around. I I think I remember this correctly. I think I remember having to fight to get him uh, live musicians. Wow, we just didn't have any money. But uh, I'm so glad that uh, I was able to convince uh, the folks at Miramax to pony up for that because one of the uh, one of the great joys of my life was being uh, being in Nate's studio for the recording session and just hearing uh, hearing hearing the music performed live. Yeah.
did you know um did you know what you wanted from the score did you know that uh what were the conversations that you had with him about what you wanted that score to sound like but also to achieve i mean we had we had conversations and and i remember saying i wanted it to feel uh like memory i wanted it to feel pastoral but i didn't want it ever to do I, I didn't want the score. To, you know how it, it's a fine line you have to walk uh, for for a score, perfectly augmenting what's happening emotionally and stepping over the line and yeah. pushing it too much. And so I said we have to always be really careful to not fall over into it becoming um, overly sentimental. know he's remembering when he remembers those moments with Sam before everything went went bad it's just this time of innocence and discovery and and um there's a purity to it so we talked a lot about that yeah I did mention that one of my favorite film scores of all time is Elmer Bernstein's score for To Kill a Mockingbird even though I felt like it probably was too big for what this movie called for Gigi, what are you doing? Stop it. (laughs) I just got a puppy, so I'm so I'm I'm in this world. Just we have a a 14 week old puppy downstairs, so I'm I'm it's a new world for me. So yeah, it's uh, I just saw your dog behind there paddling behind. But anyway, you were saying sorry about Elmer's score. It's just uh, but Elmer's score for uh, To Kill a Mockingbird has that thing of that sort of rich, rich emotion from such an innocent time in one's life. For that movie, it was Scout and Jim and just being children. And for our movie, it was it was Frank and Sam before the powers of fear and guilt and shame were yeah. uh, destroyed them. I think the score as well does a, a wonderful job between those two time frames as well. You know, the kind of the now and the, the memories. And, and it, in particular, there was a couple I jotted down where the queue were at the funeral 
which almost has double meaning to Frank in a way. But the, the cue that, that's used there is so beautiful in bridging these two, you know, worlds together almost. And yeah, and really cutting through beautifully. Yeah. Nate's really good. He's a he's a really good composer. <laughs> Is and, it? Um, and he wanted he wanted to do this, so he was. I mean, everybody did this for scale. You know, nobody made any money making this movie because we all just loved it so much, and uh, and also because <laughs> you know nobody would give us any money to make it, so we had to make it for, for with a shoestring with a shoestring budget and a schedule. Well, you can't tell, but Alan. So you can't did. tell. <laughs> <laughs> you hide it well. It looks so much more expensive than it was. Um, that's the, that's the production designer Darcy Scanlon and uh, cinematographer Khalid Motaseb really really did amazing work with very little resources. I love that section of the the film as well. That's the road trip. Oh yeah, it's almost like a short film within the film itself. It's a wonderful section of the film as well. I thought it was just. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And just how you get to, you know, with Peter has just got this brilliant presence and his timing and even his kind of placement within us, you know, within a this sort of structure of a frame, just it's, it's, he's just precision, I think, as an actor is extraordinary. He reads everything, I think, so well. And I love that character. I loved Wally. Oh my God, I yeah. loved Wally so much. Me too. He must have been a treat to write, like a lovely character to write. He really was. I thought, I always thought that Frank would probably end up with someone who was very different from who he was yeah. and from a very different background than the one that Frank came from. Mm -hmm. Just because Frank was running away from himself and running away from that world. And I also thought, it's so interesting. People from non-Western cultures sometimes have different attitudes about things that almost seem to us like cognitive dissonance. Like, I think it's really interesting how Wally is able to, Wally can't possibly come out of the closet to his family, but he doesn't, for whatever reason, that doesn't manifest as shame <laughs> yeah. in himself. Mm -hmm. It just manifests as well. I can't do that, but I can still have a relationship with them. You know, I can still call my mom in the middle of the night, and um, yeah, I have to lie and tell her that I'm married, and and <clears throat> you know, you know, someday she'll meet her. But that's just that's not that important. <clears throat> Whereas for a Western person, it's like, oh, the shame. I'm I'm consumed with shame because they they haven't accepted me. And part of what Frank's journey is is he has to learn how to accept them as well. 
uh, and their limitations. And one of the things I, I, I really enjoy about the film is at the very end, after Aunt Butch says, you know, you, you're all going to burn in hell, Frank <laughs> goes, I know that's the best that you're capable of. It's such a good line. <laughs> it's such a great line. Yeah, yeah. With those, um, the the needle drops and the fact, you know, the, the Isley Brothers, it's your thing and cool jerk in there. Are those, when you're deciding on the choices of, of tunes, um, obviously there's a, the period the film is, is kind of set, so the, there's a... Uh, connection with with that so it's got that authenticity to to the period and the time and stuff but are those are those personal choices are those how do you come to make those decisions about those specific tracks i know money's probably an instance as well but yeah <laughs> <laughs> i do um i i i put uh source cues uh in the script and then when the editor uh, gets a hold of it and starts working, uh, he'll make su- he made suggestions uh, and uh, found some other things that seem to work. And and anytime somebody goes like, well, what about this? And if it seems to work better than what I had originally thought, I'm like, yeah, let's go with that. Of course, absolutely. But then once we had cut, uh, you know, we we had a we had songs that we were really happy with and that we felt really worked we found out how much they would cost (laughs) it's insane isn't it it's insane you know we had sly and the family stone in there we had uh i can't remember now exactly what it was but we had some and they worked fantastically but they just were too expensive and we could not um one of the one of the one of the songs that we that I did like that I really fought for to keep and I got a little extra money for that too was the Martha Tilton song. Does everyone know about this? That Frank is playing the morning after the party. Does everyone know about this? Does everyone know about this? This wonderful thing that's making us cling. Is it something new that just the two of us found? Or has it been around before, before we met? If this is the dish they call love, hey, waiter, please pardon my glove. It's like caviar, a chocolate bar, something which will help us hitch our dream to a star that all the people near and far get help to it yet. Fishes in the stream get on the beam the way we're doing. Caterpillars glow when lights are low and they're cuckooing. Does everyone know about this? Or have they been slow about this? Discovering your kiss was better than Chris. Columbus, when he landed in each history book, look, everyone should absolutely. Know about this. Fish is in the stream, getting on the beach. Like the turtle dove who fell in love. Everyone should know about this. It's so great. And all the options we tried and all the options we looked for, they just didn't work. We had Nat King Cole in there at the uh, dinner with Frank's, with Beth's parents and in Frank's apartment and Frank's um, phony girlfriend uh, <laughs> couldn't afford that, you know? Um, yeah. So ultimately I'm very happy with what we got, yeah. but uh, I do look forward to a day when I make a movie where I actually 
get to. I can afford the first choices. <laughs> A blank you know, check for the music. Oh my God, I see shows on TV and like I, I was watching um, The Queen's Gambit on yeah. Netflix, which is fantastic, but I was just like, Oh my God, what was their budget for, for needle drops? Because it's <laughs> we could have made an entire movie with the budget they have just for that. Yeah. It's insane. But then you look look at um, American Beauty and the score and the, the needle drops in, in that as well. And that's a, we had the pleasure of spending some time with, Ms., with Sam Mendes talking and we talked at length about, about your incredible script for, for that. And Sam was just talking about how much was in there for him as a as a director. You know, it was kind of just extraordinary. But for you, this is something I haven't asked anyone. And I was really interested to hear when you see your script taken into, you know, film and a composer doing their work on it and the beautiful score that Thomas Newman did for American Beauty. What does that feel like when you see your work, you know, the kind of almost the finished product with with this kind of... Um, interpretation i guess of it on screen well that was amazing i mean that was an amazing experience uh, and i was pretty spoiled uh by that whole experience being my first experience in getting something i'd written produced everybody kept saying to me during that entire process because the script sold and then it went into production pretty quickly and um Everybody kept saying you know it's not always like this <laughs> i mean i had uh songs that I had written into the script um, that um, Sam, rightly so, just kind of ignored and, and you know, took his, uh, found music of his own that worked and worked so much better than, than the things I had chosen. things I have I have learned over the years is whatever vision exists in my head when I'm writing the script yeah exists for me to get the words on the page and then once I do that I need to take my vision and let it go uh, because it's such a compare it's such a collaborative process and so many people are going to have different ideas and just because of probability mm-hmm 
a lot of those ideas are going to be better than what I originally thought of. Yeah. And so ultimately it becomes for me about what is best for the movie and what is, you know, and, and just trying to see, well, I didn't see it that way, but this really works mm. and be able to go with that. And that's true now, even that I'm directing myself, you working with uh, the cinematographer. Um, I, you know, I had very clear ideas of how I wanted to shoot things and he would say, yeah, but what about this? And I would just go, oh, yeah, that's much better. And also, we have to shoot eight pages a day. So that, that'll, help, that'll help us out there. But there is that kind of this wonderful, you, you write in in terms of, of what historically has said, I just think is extraordinary. And I think of how kind of how, how brilliant and almost kind of ahead of, the, ahead of the game you are with the writing that you've done for, for TV as well. And, and I remember kind of when Six Feet Under kind of hit the screens and it was such a kind of, brave and brilliant and creative series and I absolutely loved it and I just thought I had never seen anything like that before or characters written like that before on 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 TV and it was so nice to kind of just pop back into it knowing that I was coming to to chat to you and remember how I felt when I first watched that series and I think that that paved the way for so much TV that we see now in terms of the I guess the kind of vision and the the scope that you can have with 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 a serialized drama, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. Do you appreciate mm-hmm. that that it was, I think, a real benchmark in TV? Well, it was part of a. It 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 came around right at the same time, you know, just after The Sopranos, which was a huge for me inspiration and eye-opener in turn because i've been working in tv for years i've been doing sitcoms they were fine you know but they but um we weren't doing anything that was new or different Mm -hmm. and then when i saw the sopranos i thought wow i never really knew that tv could be something like this that it could be so cinematic that it could be so layered that it could be so smart it could be so morally ambiguous and and just the freedom of not having to, you know, be the delivery system for advertisements, which is, you know, what most TV was at that time, was was just really super inspiring to me. And I had never done a, a I had never done a, a, a drama. I had I had done plays. I had done theater. I had done four camera sitcoms, but I'd never done anything like Six Feet Under. So if, for me, it was a, kind of like a huge discovery process as we went, and I just sort of trusted my instincts. And I also had a really great writers' room, and of course that amazing cast and um, other um, producers on the show. Um, but for me, it was like film school. Because I learned so much that I didn't know going in, and I'm very proud that it that it's part of uh, that turning point in television, where television became began to discover what the medium was capable of. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know that continues to this day, and it's uh, it's uh, it's super exciting to watch. Yeah, I think it it absolutely was. It was kind of it was it was everything about it. You know, it was the aesthetic of it. It was the the performances, but the the characters, that was the thing for me that really stood out was like, I'd never seen these people represented on TV in such a beautiful and accessible way, I think is probably the way that I would probably put it. If people are looking for something to watch in lockdown and they haven't seen any Six Feet Under, 63 episodes or something, isn't there? It's like, go on, get started. We've we don't know how long this is going to last for us. So, 
Have you found yeah. the? Um, it's been interesting chatting to people as well about the how they've reacted to you know this this situation that we find ourselves in, the crazy world of COVID and politics and whatnot. But have you found that it creatively inspiring in a way? Have you have you? Has it allowed you the time to to explore things and to write and to yeah? How have you found this time? Yeah, I wrote a slasher movie. Great! Just for my own uh, entertainment. Uh, and also, obviously, I think I had a lot of anger I needed to, <laughs> to get out. <laughs> so I got it out by killing a bunch of frat boys. Um, <laughs> uh Nobody wants they to are make the it. root of all evil, so it's kind of... You yeah. know, I, people have read it and nobody wants to make it, but I'm also, I'm, I'm working on a TV pilot for something, and then I've been putting together a, a pitch, uh, a Zoom pitch for a limited series that uh, we're going to take out probably after the first of the year, because I don't think anybody's buying anything right now, because I don't think anybody has any money, because... Um, when COVID hit, I think everybody just poured all their money into uh, development. I, but, I, but I'm also bored. I'm bored out of my mind. Yeah. I, really, I really enjoy being in production. I really, really enjoy being in a writer's room. I'm fine, but yeah. I'm going a little crazy. I've had some not so great days. Yeah. As I'm sure everyone has, because it's just, a, it, it's, it's so weird. Yeah. It's just got to take each day as it comes and just almost embrace however that day you know presents itself to you really isn't it it's kind of oh it's going to be one of those tomorrow's going to be another one let's move on kind of thing yeah exactly exactly when i, I went back to watch uncle frank for a second time i was i, I kind of had this wonderful um i don't know it's, it's 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 got so many layers to it as well i think that that i encourage people to to watch it more than once as well because you you kind of see things on a second view and that you don't necessarily kind of because you're so you're in this luxury and in this beautiful beautiful film but i it could be on the stage it could be a theater production this i think as well it's got such a a kind of beautiful simplicity to it as well in a way that it's got this kind of i don't know i kind of envisioned vision seeing paul bettany on stage well i you know i started in theater and pretty much all of the cast are are accomplished theater actors mm -hmm. I do. Uh, one of the things I like about writing for the screen as opposed to writing for the stage is the ability to uh, you can have a scene that's half a page. You know what I mean? And you get you hit that story point and you move on. Whereas I'm, I, I, when you said you can see it on stage, I was thinking, well, how would you do the road trip and how would you, how would you do this and how would you do that? But I do think one of the one of the things that makes it feel like it could be on stage is the language, the the musicality of the language because of the southern dialect and and that whole sort of thing. So that the language becomes uh, more important than it perhaps it is, you know, uh, usually. Yeah, I love the the relationship between Frank and Beth. It's just it's really 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 special. How amazing is she? Oh my God, Sophia, she's incredible. The first time I saw her was on HBO's uh, limited series, Sharp Objects. Yeah. She played young Amy Adams. She didn't have a lot to do. I mean, just when there were yeah. flashbacks, there would be like, you would see her, you know, yeah. roller skating. And, yeah. um, and I remember seeing it and I, and I went, who is that girl? Who yeah. is that? Because yeah. I couldn't take my eyes off her. And uh, we were casting at the time, and I, I, I went on IMDb and saw that she was, at the time, she was 16 years old, which is exactly between 
Beth is 14 at the beginning of the movie and 18 for the rest of the movie. I saw that she had done Stephen King's It, it. which is not a movie that I saw, not the kind of movie I would go see on my own. And so I rented it and watched it. And, and she, she can carry a movie. She can carry an entire movie. And I said, let's offer it to this girl and hopefully she'll say yes. And she did. Uh, so that was extremely uh, fortunate for us, I think, because so much of the movie is Beth just observing. Yeah. You know, and Beth mm -hmm. just seeing and listening. But there's something so luminous about her face and those eyes, especially that you just she she just pulls you in and you really feel like I'm seeing the movie through her eyes. And um, yeah, she it was we were very lucky to have her. I'm looking forward to enjoying her career and where she goes and and what she does Absolutely. for sure. Um, yeah. It's been such a treat to get to chat to you. Really, really, really is. Thank you for your time and congratulations again on the film. Yeah, this is one of my favorite interviews I've done. So thank you. Oh, very kind of you, sir. Thank you so much. Um, please Absolutely. take care, stay safe. And um, I look forward to watching that slasher movie. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully <laughs> take care, stay safe, enjoy your new puppy. Oh, I will. Thank you what so much. Of, what kind of dog? He is a Portuguese water dog. We nearly called him Barack, but um, yeah. we didn't. In the end, we called him River, and um, yeah. he's he's brilliant. He's fun. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, keeping our mind off everything else, which is lovely. So helpful. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah. All right. <laughs> Take Thank care. You so Thank you. featured on the soundtrack to Uncle Frank. That's It's Your Thing by the Isley Brothers. Rounding off this first part of another soundtrack in Doubleheader with Alan Ball. You can watch Uncle Frank right now on Amazon Prime and I suggest you won't be disappointed if you do. It is a beautiful film. Next up is a bit of a first for the podcast as we bring you someone who has, well, pretty much single-handedly made a movie, having written, directed, acted in and scored falling. You can see this in cinemas now and you can also watch it at home. For all the details, head to modernfilms.com forward slash falling. And since Viggo Mortensen wrote the music for the film, well, we'll start with one of his cues, Come and Gone.
Hi, Vigo. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm not bad. Thank you so much. Um, oh, it was lovely to to watch your film again after we did that um, wonderful Q and A with everybody. Uh, maybe about a month ago now, I think that was. Um, yes, yeah, time goes. Yeah, totally. Thank you so much for doing this. It's quite a unique thing to speak to someone about their film where they have written it, directed it, starred in it, and also composed it. I think this might be a first for us. So well done. Um, and the results are so beautiful. When did you decide that you were going to do all those jobs, first of all? Was that always the idea? Well, I mean, I was on my own with the project for quite a long time. So while I was trying to raise the money and find somebody to join me as a, on a producing, in a producing capacity, um, I had a lot of time on my hands. We found the money, lost the money. I tried to work on another project for which I would not have done the music, writing, directing, and I would not have acted in it either. But then that didn't, I didn't get enough money together for that either and uh, went back to falling and got that done. But in all that time, you know, I kept working. Lance Henriksen was with me from the beginning, you know, yeah. from the first go around. And I kept working with him. And so was Marcel Ziskin, the cinematographer. So we kept working, sharing images, sharing um, ideas, you know, in terms of mm -hmm. trying to come up with a, at first, just generally a tone for the movie overall, and then for differentiating in terms of image, you know, uh, the flashback scenes, the recent past, the distant past, and what the present should look like, and, you know, just all those things. But apart from the two of them, in terms of working on the script and working on the visual approach, well, also Carol Spear, the production designer, but they were there, they were assuming they would be available, they were going to stay with us, you know, stay with yeah. the project. But otherwise, I was on my own in the sense that I kept, you know, working on the script, kept uh, fine tuning it, kept playing with the structure of the scenes, just to make sure that everything followed as, as best I could. You don't know until you start shooting some things, but uh, I was just trying to organize myself. So since I was on my own, I also started thinking about things like the music, also thinking about what means were we likely to have, not, not much probably in terms of, <laughs> yeah. you know, so for, but mainly uh, for creative reasons, I just started thinking about it, how much mm -hmm. do I want for this story? I, I always felt that it should be discreet. Yeah. And that, I mean, I generally don't like it if a composer tries to too hard to make me, to tell me what I should think or feel any more than I do a director, you know, or a cinematographer or an actor. Um, I like to see things for myself and think for myself as a spectator. And that's the kind of movie I wanted to make, one that I would like to see. <laughs> And um, in terms of the music, I, um, I started thinking of themes, not just overall what the f type of music it should be. I, early on, I thought, well, it should be. I mean, I started composing some themes on the piano, and I thought, no, you know, it should probably be a piano-based score, I think. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that would be a good way to do it.
melodies, sound effects from the piano. And then, because I'd worked with him a lot over the years, Buckethead, guitar player, the two of us basically made the score. But there were certain things that we had done before that I thought something in that vein would work, you know. Occasionally, the guitar could come in, it could be by itself, and sometimes just together with, with the piano. And mm. but most of the way, it would be piano. And so, you know, I mean, there was so much time before we actually shot that by the time we shot, I had most of, I knew most of the places already where I was going to use music. Wow. And I had a lot of it composed, basically. So, and then that kept going. As we were editing, I thought of some more things, a little bit less here, a little bit more here, something a little bit bolder here, you know, depending as things were coming together. Because I found... I had not had experience editing image before, really, Um, but I had had quite a bit of experience editing music, producing and editing, mixing, you know, music that I'd done with with Buckethead. And so so I found that in editing image that it was a similar, it wasn't that different, really. It was about Mm -hmm. timing, rhythm, and motion. each image, it was like, okay, boom, boom. Okay, that's as long as it should be there. And then you put that scene next to another scene and then you start to realize, no, it should go one more beat. Boom. And it was very much like editing music, I found, editing the image. So it all kind of went together. By the time we were done with the edit, we had the music basically sorted and we went in to record it in London and and did it in like two days. I mean, basically, it was very fast. But that was just because there had been so much time to prepare. In the same sense that although we only had five weeks to shoot the movie, which is not very much, when you look at all the children with their limited hours, the winter hour, yeah. day, you know, shooting in winter with limited daylight hours and different time periods, it was kind of an ambitious schedule. But we prepared really well beforehand so that we were able to do things in a more efficient, calm way. And it was the same with, with the score. We had it, really, and just put it down relatively quickly because we'd worked on it a lot and... So it came out the way it did, and I was happy with it, and I'm still happy with it. I've seen the movie yeah. several times as I've presented it, <laughs> yeah. and it would have been—it was tempting to do more, but it just felt right. And it's—I think it's one of those scores where there's actually more there than you realize, but it's not yeah. intrusive. You know, it sort of accompanies uh, without underlining too much or trying to push you toward paying attention to any particular thing. It just 
felt right, you know. But that's like I think it's a function of working on it for a long time and listening to it over and over and mm. you know, settling on what feels right for this particular story. think that you're you, you can tell the the connection that you have through all those different roles within this film though because the the kind of synergy between everything is so beautiful and it's really interesting you say knowing when to not have music and that can sometimes be the hardest thing is to not put music in a scene to hold back from it and in particular I love that um the crossword scene at the end which is so such a beautiful moment in the film and a lot of people would have had that music kind of coming in towards the end of that scene before it, it cuts, but you don't and you hold back. And it makes when the music comes in kind of even more powerful. I think it's such a, it's just so beautifully crafted. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's almost like it's the kind of the, the heartbeat or the kind of, yeah, the, the fluidity of it that sometimes you don't always hear. And like you say, you don't realize how much is actually in there. Well, it's interesting that you bring that, that section up because there's an example of something else that I was very attentive to, you know, being that it's a medium that gives you tools, gives you options. You know, when I'm working with the sense of differing memories that the son and father have, what the memories of a person that's in the initial stages of dementia is, you know, you're, you're playing sometimes showing that through image, sometimes through image and sound, sometimes through sound alone. And sound, you know, the sound, uh, it's always this way, I suppose, in a way, if you think about it. But the sound mix, in other words, which sounds you accentuate, which, where you place them. And this is especially yeah. evident if you're watching it in a cinema, obviously, much more than at home, I suppose. But the timing of the sound, you know, even in that scene, there's, <clears throat> you know, the leak from the overspilled bathtub has largely stopped. There's, there's a drop here and there still into that pail into that mm -hmm. bucket and you know we timed those things we timed when you hear the wind wow. you know, the wind the wind is there's something about the place in the past and the present always that place where willis lives there's always wind there's always wind and you start to notice it in that scene and then you start to imagine okay this man alone in that windy place you know yeah that sort of those things come together but it's really subconscious i don't like it for someone to I mean, someone like you might notice those things, but it all hangs together. It's part of the score, really, the way the wind works, the way those drops in the bucket work. And so for me, that was, in a way, it doesn't count officially as score, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, felt, I felt with the sound mix, we were scoring that scene in a way. It's almost like the instruments that are, you know, the, the feelings that you're going to get musically yeah. once the music comes in. Uh, at the very end of that, that scene with those images from outside that place that they both share, actually, where there's a connection, where there's been disparate memories and sometimes conflicting memories of, say, the mother-wife figure, things like that. Now there's a, there's, a, there's a coming together of memory of that place, that farm, that landscape that's shared by the, by the two of them. But Leading up to that are the sounds of the real place of that room, the creaking of the chair, the, the wind, the drips in the buckets, you know, all these things. Yeah. Uh, 
the scribbling uh, of the pencil, you know, trying to find the crossword, just a little sound. Even the way he moves the, yeah, right. he moved the way he moves the broken crockery with his slippers across the floor. Right. Even that Those kind things, of, yeah. Yeah. There, and he's starting to get emotional, but trying to cover it, Willis is, and just the sounds he makes. All of that to me is like a prelude to then the music comes in. It should make instinctive, like physical sense when that music comes yeah. in. So it was very interesting with image and sound and score. I didn't really see them as separate things. They had to yeah. work together. love as well the moments where you have this these lovely almost kind of they're almost like breaths I feel where you have you've beautifully shot just captured something to do with nature so be it fr frosty leaves or the sun kind of cascading through something and they, they only maybe last for about 15-20 seconds throughout mm -hmm. the film they're kind of peppered and you have these beautiful little cues along them as well mm -hmm. and they're almost kind of like they're almost, yeah, I find them almost like breaths, like almost encouraging me as someone who was totally just enraptured with the film and memories and, you know, conjuring up my own memories and my relationships with my family as well. But they just almost reminded you to breathe. Well, you have to be careful how much of that you put in. Well, same with the music, but, but with image, you know, when you start to show that kind of nature imagery, and even though it's very, it's part and parcel of what this family is, you see it from the very beginning, all the sort of the duck hunting and the, everything that follows with the story about this duck outdoors and then indoors and then the next morning and then in the kitchen and then, you know, all of that, you have to layer it in judiciously, I think, and you, you don't know until you're really farther along in the editing how much is too much or just enough. Yeah. And with those nature images, even though it's very much part, like the whole duck thing introduces the relationship the family has with nature, and it shows the dynamic of the family through that yeah. connection with nature and the duck and life and death and all those things. But, but then as, you, as, as we later, we shot a lot of footage and recorded sound also, but in nature to use, but then you have to just lay it in very carefully because otherwise it can be really like any aspect of a movie can be self-indulgent and it can be like, okay, another shot of the forest or another, you know what I mean? It has to just feel right and move yeah. the story along and contribute to, well, hopefully what happens is what happened to you. And I've heard this from audiences in different places at Q and A's where they say, I don't know why, but it made me think of my uncle or I don't know hmm. why, but it reminded me when I was a little kid, this happened. And then they, often would tell me a story that has absolutely nothing to do with the story of falling, but on an emotional level, it did for them. And it was in part from images that they'd seen because they couldn't explain it. And in part from uh, the score and the sound mix, sometimes they would yeah. point out something in the event. Well, when that happened or 
when the old man is on his own on the beach and it was a secret between us and him that he was fine and he was having a good time and he had escaped and all that and all of the yeah. family worried and so forth. And obviously that's one of the more, okay, now we're really going for it in terms of score because it added to this release or this relief how, uh, escape, you know, for him. So it was interesting how people relate that. And then they would say, well, it reminds me of my grandfather because of this and that. And it was something yeah. that had nothing to do with that scene, for example. But I really enjoy that when there's a connection made, you know, because ideally by not trying to push and telling, underlining everything and, and showing and everything and trying to indicate to the audience what they should think and what they should pay attention to, you allow them to make the movie their own. And the best thing yeah. that can happen, I think, is that you've told a story and by the end of it, they have their own opinions. It's, it's become their movie. It's become their movie Absolutely. story. And they might bring up things that you'd never thought of. And they may be right. You say, well, I never thought. Well, you seemed like you were doing this. I said, hmm, yeah, maybe, without even thinking about <laughs> it. Or maybe not. Maybe yeah. it's your yeah. Nah. Well, it's, it's almost like when I always think it's the same for, you know, musicians, when you release a, an album, it's like you've you've obviously put all, you know, this hard work and emotion and creativity into it and be that personal stories or whatever it is. But once you release it, it's not yours anymore. It belongs to it belongs to the person that's either listening to it or watching it. And it's up to them. And they'll have their own associations mm. from their own life. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the duck. Did I read that the duck story actually happened to you? Yeah, that's one of the only sort of things, events in the movie that that are taken from real life. But I thought that was really useful because, as I said, it introduces the dynamic, the family has. Yeah. Just the, it introduces the landscape. It introduces their connection to nature. As I say, life, death, all that. Yeah. And it just seemed right. And uh, but yeah, I did. I was four. It was a different landscape. It was in North America. Actually, I was when I was four, I was in Argentina, but it was winter and it was out in an area like that that wasn't as wooded. It was, you know, but it was a, you know, a pond, a small lake, marshy area. And it was cold and it was getting dark. And my dad just, I don't know why, on a whim, I was sitting on his lap already, I think. And he said, do you want to try? And I did. And I got a lucky shot off and and then all that, the bathtub and sleeping with the duck with my father sort of taking my side that did happen and my mother was thinking it was just absurd <laughs> yeah. like, he's a dead animal why is he in you know well i'm taking it away as soon as he goes to sleep i mean i imagine that conversation because i did wake up and it was gone the only real difference apart from the landscape being different was that i was probably angrier than the boy in the movie was when i the duck was gone you know? yeah. And I stayed annoyed longer than he does. You know? <laughs> yeah. I had to really say, look, that's it. I'm not talking yeah. about it anymore. <laughs> if, if you want to take part in the preparation of the duck, you can. But that's what's happening with it. And then I finally, I did pluck it in part. <laughs> and I did watch the cooking. And then it became interesting again. You know? <laughs> it's amazing. I love it. Such a great story. Um, <laughs> Lance is extraordinary in yes. this film. I mean, the... The complexities of a character who's going through, you know, what he's going through is just, and the, just the way he plays it. And I love as well when you, when he gets home, you know, when he gets back to his surroundings, his, you know, his safe place, how you see that and you feel that in the character in terms of, I'm actually okay here. Yes. You know, you're dragging me around here, there and everywhere. 
trying to get and I'm I'm fine here, you know, and it's it's John who lets the bath overflow and it's you know, it's all that stuff. It's it's so oh it's such a beautiful, beautiful performance. I mean, it wouldn't matter how hard we worked on the image and sound mix and the score if we didn't have that performance from him. I'm not that it wouldn't matter, it just wouldn't it wouldn't be complete. It wouldn't work as well, you know, because he his performance is riveting and it's mm. it's brave it's kind of fearless he doesn't care about how he's judged as an actor he's just doing it and the way he listens to people i mean he has a lot of dialogue a lot more than he usually has as an actor and he does it really well and a lot of emotional emotionally demanding scenes and complex scenes but it's the way he listens to people the way he reacts to people and goes subtly in and out of different mental states it's a marvel to watch what he does you know yeah. When you talked about earlier about the, the kind of how the line between getting all those pieces kind of right, you know, in terms of making sure you're not forcing someone to feel a certain way about things and all that kind of thing. When you consider that this is the first, is this, am I right in thinking it is the first feature film you've directed? Yeah, first anything. I, mean, I haven't directed a short or anything, yeah. It's so kind of just pitch perfect on all those levels in terms of, you know, how it looks and how it makes you feel and, and how it sounds and the performances like we just talked about as well. And I wanted to ask whether you've been, I don't know, you've been like a human sponge over the years with all the amazing directors that you've worked with in terms of, you know, just watching and observing and taking things in with the idea in your head that you knew you wanted to, to direct at some point. Yeah, I mean, I've been fortunate. I've been, especially the last 15 years or so, maybe the last 20 years, but I, I've worked with some really intelligent directors, really well-prepared men, women from different countries with different, you know, obviously cultural backgrounds and different approaches to filmmaking. But, you know, this just their insistence, their sort of quiet insistence on a degree of excellence beyond what you usually experience on a movie set, just from everyone, just by their example, you know, by the way they prepared yeah. to shoot, you know, you know, I realized from these people that whether it's David Cronenberg or Jane Campion or Matt Ross or Pete Farrelly or even back to, you know, Peter Jackson in a way, although that was a much bigger, sprawling enterprise, but that you can never prepare too much or too early for, for, for a shoot. You never put too much thought or watch a movie enough times or be in the editing room enough or think about it over and over. Because something will just suddenly click after the three mm. hundredth time that you've seen a scene. You're like, "Oh wait, oh okay. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that before?" You know, but you have to give it time mm -hmm. to really work at it. And the more you can do of that before you start, you know, and the more you do it collectively with the crew and with the actors, when you start filming, it just feels like a continuation of a process mm -hmm. rather than, "Oh, we got to start. Who, who's doing what? What are we doing?" You know, none of that. <laughs> Everybody knows yeah. what they're doing. And that's why, even though I had some misgivings about acting in it, they quickly dissipated right on the first day. I realized, yeah, no, we have a plan. We all know what we're going to do in terms of sound, in terms of image, mm -hmm. camera placement, lighting, what the places look like, what shots we have today to accomplish. It wasn't that distracting because I, I trusted the team and we, we were in sync. And so I was able mm -hmm. to fully focus on Lance 
and act with them, you know, on an equal playing field, trying to solve the problems of the scene as fellow actors. And so, it was, yeah, I learned a lot over the years. And yes, I have been nosy, actually. And, and <laughs> I'm just curious nosy over the years. And some people don't like to talk about it, but you, know, you just watch them. But but there's plenty of cinematographers that I've spoken with, and gaffers, and and costume designers, and and then just watching. I so it's interesting that they're choosing these shots to cover this sequence. Maybe only these shots. And from that angle, that's interesting. And mm-hmm. and then another step is just watching the finished movies, the way they're edited, the choices, you know, why on that line are you on that character? That's an interesting choice. And, and it either seems right to me or maybe I'm not sure, you know. And so yeah, each of yeah. those steps, each of those viewings tells you something, whether you yeah. realize what it is or not. And it accumulates so that, you know, by the time we were shooting Falling, even though we'd also talked about other movies and photographs and all kinds of things and I thought about lots of even scores and everything oh did you that's interesting yeah I mean I just sort of thought what things work but then I I kept coming back to well this is a particular story I have to suit this I can't really Mm -hmm. and we never talked about other movies or other scores or anything else but uh we just I think we assumed the way I do as an actor that you do all this research and then you put it to one side and then let's see what's happened what happens? I really know this character as well as I can at this point. And whatever happens on the day, whatever another actor throws at me or the director expects or asks for, I can adapt to that new approach or that new demand in character as an actor. And just like as a filmmaker, as a director, I was also adapting to how the actors were on the day, what the weather was like and so forth. But we already, it was what the scene asked for, what we had planned to do. And we could make little adjustments because in a calm way, because we already had a good, very thought out plan and uh, all of that helped. And we never had to refer to, oh, we're doing a scene like so-and-so did in that movie. Or this is an homage to that movie or that line and that scene or something. And, And some directors do that and they talk about it openly. And it's just a different approach. It's neither better nor worse. But that wasn't what we did. I mean, we just sort of, we shot the movie the way the movie asked to be shot. And I scored nice. the movie the way I felt it needed, it asked to be scored. And based on communication with people and, and involving people as much as possible. You know, the first yeah. day I said, we have a short amount of time to shoot a lot of material. And we have one chance to do this. So let's, you know, anybody that has an idea, a suggestion, no matter how silly they might think it is, please speak up. In time, don't bring up to me uh, an idea you had about a scene we shot the day before. Do it in the moment. It's never going to be an annoyance. You never know. A good idea can come from anyone at any time. So no matter how much we prepared, what we're going to do. So that's how it was made. And I I think by having that kind of communication with the cast and crew, everything went more smoothly. And um, it it was a great experience. I liked it. It was every bit as difficult as I thought it would be. But it was even more satisfying that I dreamed yeah. it could be, you know, might be. How was directing Cronenberg? <laughs> um, it was easy. Very professional. <laughs> yeah. Takes direction well then, good. As I said to him when I sent him the script, I said, you know, this isn't like a favor or a gimmick or I just, I've seen your work as an actor before and you're, you'd be perfect for this part, in my opinion. 
if you, but if you don't want to do it, don't worry about it. You know, we'll do it with someone else. Fortunately, he wanted to. And it was an amazing moment when he came on the set. Obviously, he's very respected and rightly so filmmaker. But in Canada, you know, he's sort of a, a deity, really. And for a crew, <laughs> for a film crew. And yeah. so he walked on set and it was like, oh, the man is here, you know, kind of thing. Tie, shirts and ties on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah practically. <laughs> but everybody was on their best behavior and they, yeah. they watching him. And I'm like, come on, come on, let's go. No, but he, <laughs> but he sort of, but he sort of made a couple of silly jokes. I don't know what, he was just sort of irreverent <laughs> and relaxed. And so everybody calmed down and got to work. <laughs> I only learned recently, like in the last month or so, in one of our Q&As or one of our interviews from Lance, well, he was talking about, we were talking about that scene and the director and the, the interviewer was saying, wow, and David Cronenberg, that must have been something. And he said, yeah. And I described this thing with the crew, how they reacted and then calmed down and we got to work. And then Lance says, yeah, there's Cronenberg, Cronenberg, this, this guy Cronenberg. I mean, I had no idea who it was. I go, really? I didn't know that. I thought you were just on your best behavior. He goes, no, it was just this skinny, older guy who was just like this kind of really into being this doctor. And, and he was, you know, he had seemed to have kind of a wry sense of humor. I thought, wow, he's quite formidable as an ad. Where did they find this guy? And then, you know, this guy Cronenberg, Cronenberg, they kept talking about. And then he left. And then, he, you know, he said, I felt like an idiot because then I realized I saw a couple of months ago, I saw an interview on the Internet where you and he were, I think it was a, a presentation in Toronto of, a, of Crash, did a surprise course, and I brought him yeah. on as a surprise on stage and we were talking. It was sort of a, a dialogue, you know, post-film. And he said, and there you were with, with the proctologist. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? It wasn't until you saw that that you thought, oh, this is a director. Of course, I've seen Eastern Promises and I've seen all, you know, The Dead Zone and all these movies. And it's like, oh, okay. He had no idea when we were filming, which was. That's which amazing. Was, yeah, yeah. He just that. was in, in character and just sort of annoyed by him. And it was perfect. So, yeah. I've asked people at Q&As in different places recently, you know. I've sort of asked for a show of hands. How many of you knew that it was the director, David Cronenberg, playing the proctologist in the scene uh, in, in the clinic there? And it'd be like 10%, maybe 15 at most, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes less. And, uh, and, and then I said, well, who, who, who thought that the scene worked and that he was a good actor, that, ca- you know, that character who played that, the, the person who played that character was a good actor and they are pretty much unanimous. I said, okay, well, that was the main reason for casting. I wanted the scene to work and I wanted the actor to be good. Uh, for the rest of you, I suppose there's an added allure or something, you know, maybe amusing or something, or maybe disturbing, depending on what yeah. your visual associations are with his work. To think of <laughs> Batman putting on a glove and, and what he's going to do with it. Inserting his long finger into your body is like, oh, no, not that man. But, um, yeah. So. But it was great. Um, I'm so glad he did it. And he's great in it. It's a nice scene. Yeah. Listen, we've run out of time, Vigo. It's so great to, to talk to you at length about this this wonderful film and massive congratulations. I really hope that that it's kind of I don't know, got your kind of the excitement for, for whatever is is next in terms of what you create. And it's been lovely as well because we've had quite a few people on the podcast who we've talked about, you know, very Matt Ross was on, we talked about Captain Fantastic and that oh, wonderful wow. score and George Mackay and yes. that brilliant Guns N' Roses cover at the end and 
Oh, it's amazing. And Warren Ellis was on talking about the road score as well. So we've had you as part of it, but it's lovely to come on and talk about your film and massive congratulations again. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. From the score to falling, that's Resolution by Viggo Mortensen running off the second part of soundtracking with the, well, wait for it, writer, director, actor and composer. My huge thanks to both Vigo and Alan for taking the time to talk to us. Uncle Frank is available to watch now via Amazon Prime. And as I said, falling is in cinemas now, but you can also watch it at home. Head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous episodes, including both of my conversations with Sam Mendes. And please do subscribe while you're there, though your preferred podcast provider works just as well. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please, if you have the time, be sure to try and look us up on YouTube, where you'll find a regular companion show that I put together to accompany the podcast. Next up on the show, talking about many things, including creating that fantastic score for the TV series Sherlock. Michael Price is next week's guest. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. In the meantime, stay safe. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.